Giants, here's a taste of this episode's guest. My oh my, the first musician on the show, let the magic begin. The Giant. Thinkers. Giant Thinkers. Giant Thinkers Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo, and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives, and giant thinkers. Hello, and welcome to the show. I've missed you all very much. It's been a little while since the last episode, but for good reason, I turned 31 in April, went to America to visit some family and friends, squeezed in an event hosted by AIGA San Diego, and on my return, embraced some downtime to unwind and do something I've never done before, which was go on a yoga retreat and eat vegetarian food for four days. And you know what? I absolutely loved it. I recommend that you all give this practice a go if you haven't already. The breathing techniques gave me a new level of calm and stillness that was lacking in my life. So now I've incorporated yoga into my daily routine, just 10 minutes in the morning, executing the basic movements and postures that I learned to bring balance to my mind and start the day with a bit more peace. Now, on to this episode, our guest is a European-based, Australian-born artist, composer, singer, and producer. She uses electronic instruments and technology to create and perform masterpieces in real time and has performed all over the world. She recently delivered a moving TEDx talk titled How to Translate the Feeling into Sound and is also a freelance lecturer in creativity at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts. Some of the topics we spoke about include the various experiences of the composer versus the listener, the best tools she recommends for those wanting to experiment with electronic instruments, her cover of Outcast's Heya that surpassed well over 2.5 million views and counting, the time she took the plunge at 24 years old to live in Europe and the journey that followed dedicating everything to her craft and the process of simultaneously performing while envisioning the composition ahead of time. A few quick announcements. Firstly, thank you so much for subscribing to the show and for tuning in when new episodes go live. June 2015 is when I started this podcast. So we're creeping up to the two-year birthday mark. I really appreciate you. Yes, you listening right now for all your engagement. Some of you even writing to me uh, directly on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. 
I love you all. This is 100% your show. Secondly, I'm now actively targeting high schools and companies to come in and deliver talks on how to get a mentor, not just as a designer, but in general. So if you're a high school student, let me know if you'd like me to visit your school or if you're a parent that wants me to visit your son or daughter's school, let me know. And if you're a employee and you feel this talk, how to get a mentor could benefit your coworkers, get in touch. My handle everywhere online is The Giant Thinker. Alrighty, let's do it. I present to you the stunning, soulful, and exceptionally talented Rachel Claudio. Rachel Claudio, welcome to the Giant Thinkers Podcast. How are you doing today? Not very well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, now, do you prefer being referred to as Rachel Claudio or just Claudio? Oh, wow. I wasn't ready for that question. Um, I, 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 you know what? I don't mind. I really don't mind. Okay. Whatever works for you. Okay. Well, I, I think uh, well, I'll stick to Rachel since we met uh, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I met you as, as Rachel and um, we met at Emergence Creative Festival at the beautiful Margaret River in Western Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, we connected immediately. Uh, I saw you playing on one of the evenings of the, uh, the festival and uh, you absolutely crushed it. You are the real deal. Um, I was totally transported. You're amazing. Oh, thank you, Ram. But I say that is a little bit inaccurate. We connected because I made a lot of noise while you were giving, <laughs> while you were giving a talk. That's true. That's true. Um, I, I found who was the uh, the the wonderful <laughs> the he- heckler at the back <laughs> the at the back the um, during my talk. So we we definitely connected um, in various ways. I think that uh, it would be accurate for me to say you are a dangerously good mix of talent, intelligence, and charisma. And uh, the listeners, as I am uh, too, are going to be in for a memorable ride. So here you go. Oh, by the way, you are the first musician to be on the podcast. Oh, wow. I'm so honored. Yes. You're going to be, this is episode 44. So 43 people before you have not been musicians. (laughs) So first off, Rachel, I have an icebreaker question for you. Mm. If you had to get a visible tattoo on your arm, uh, assuming you don't have one already, what would it be? Mm, I would say um, either a giant repeating geometric pattern. Mm, I like it. Okay. Or maybe just a box of donuts. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Um, now, I, I could dig deeper into that. Well, why don't I? <laughs> The geometric shapes, why would, why would you get that? Well, I am obsessed with repeating patterns, which is weird because as a musician I find it really hard to do the same thing twice. Mm. But, um, yeah, ever drawn to fractals, uh, yeah, any, anything geometric, repeating lines, shapes, triangles, uh, sacred geometry, I love all of it. I feel you. I'm obsessed with it, yeah. I feel you. Very cool. I and love the order in it and I just feel very drawn, mm. any tessellation or, yeah. That makes sense. And uh, we don't need to go into the donuts. Um, that's uh, probably uh, 99% of people. Um, <laughs> now, where would you say your expertise lies? Um, I would say uh, in the fact that I'm hyper aware that I know that I don't really know anything. <laughs> mm. um, I think 
I definitely approach everything as a sort of perpetual experiment in in the self. And that means that um, there's an allowance for failure and uh, and a constant pushing for growth. And I think that's probably my my one real gift is that I, I don't mind tripping up and I don't feel um, embarrassed about it. I feel very driven by it if there's something that I can't do in the way that I would really like to do. And, yeah, um, either that or uh, I think I'm, I'm starting to get good at helping people line up what they're good at with what the world seems to value. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And with this, uh, one of the words that just stood out when you were saying that was experimentation. Um, and uh, where did the music come into play? Like if, if we touch on your childhood a bit, can you tell mm-hmm. us about that? How did you grow up and how did this kind of um, vehicle um, position itself in your life? Yeah. Uh, well, I've been playing music since I was six. I think I'm lucky enough that, you know, in my nature, especially when I as a six-year-old, you couldn't really tell me what to do. So I clashed a lot <laughs> with my poor mother who was just trying to desperately understand how to deal with this kid. And But for the most part, it just sort of – my parents left me to my devices. Um, and music became – really quickly became this, um, I don't know, best friend, psychologist, uh, confessional – uh, party. It, it was it was everything, but twin sister. Mm. Um, it's yeah. It's never not been there. I, I feel so fortunate that um, at an early age I had some kind of outlet for my mania. I think it's probably the the reason that I that I um, probably arguably could be called a well adjusted adult. <laughs> what uh, instrument were you playing at six? Piano. It was piano. Piano. Mm, yeah. Just writing, writing, writing piano. Yeah. What 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 mischievous uh, things would your would your mum catch you doing? I, I um I'm just trying to think about all the piano players I know, um, and uh, they seem to be quite calm. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I was a fiery. I was a really fiery kid, and um, I just had to understand everything. So you couldn't. You, you, you know, if she ever wanted to sort of impose a rule or a, just a boundary, I had to understand why. <laughs> and so, uh, especially in the 80s, you know, we weren't in the practice of um, philosophizing with children. And so we just battled, just <laughs> clashed and clashed and clashed. Um, you know, and I just wanted to be left banging away on a piano for hours and hours at a time. It was this also a noise disturbance. <laughs> 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 they were just, we, we, all, we all worked it out. but. Um, also, I think uh, what really worked in my favour is that um, if I, you know, if I acted out, then the, the punishment would be that I wasn't allowed to play. Aha, there you go. And so that only fueled, yeah, that fueled the <laughs> that thing in me that I had to, I had to be near music, I had to be near it. So it actually really worked out for me. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And was it your own initiative to play music, or did your parents introduce you to that? Uh, they got the piano for my older sister so she could have lessons, but she hated it. She just wanted to play tennis. So we would do this thing where I would learn what she had to learn and we would just lock ourselves in a room and I would play. Then they would think that she was practicing. 
which was hilarious looking back on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we again, we we found out. We've both found our space in that. <laughs> what does your sister do now? She's a radiographer. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And um, your parents, what did, what did they do? So uh, mum was a medical secretary. Dad was a lawyer. Wow. Yeah, dad was a lawyer. And, uh, yeah, he was, he, was pre- he was pretty ahead of his time, though, in the sense that I remember uh, as often as he could, he'd be like, hey, Rach, do you want to go for a drive so we can dream? And we'd just go for a car ride and he'd, he'd just talk about this stuff and he knew I loved big words and so he would um, intentionally just drop a big word every mm-hmm. now and then in a sentence and then put a little pause after it because he knew that I would be like, what is, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and then he'd spell it and then we'd talk about it. It's just, yeah, he, he, I don't know if it was just um, that our personalities happened to line up, mm-hmm. but he did very well to deal with um, the particular quirks of, my nature. I, I learned later on that I was an eccentric kid. I never knew it at the time, mm-hmm. and I think that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I never got. Uh, obviously, I was instilled with enough strength that that um, in those crucial years, I didn't feel like an outsider mm. at all. Even though I didn't, you know, really line up to what a lot of the other kids were doing. Um, I'm sure it's because of him, or I was just that naive. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I didn't know a lot till later. This was in, uh, you grew up in Western Australia, yes, is that correct? Yes, yeah. Cool. Perth, was Perth. it? Or nearby? Perth, Western yeah. Australia, yep. There you go. All right. So you navigated your way through and you finished school. And what was that like for you? School? Yeah. Were you, you, were you pursuing music the whole time? Yes. Were you headstrong and going, I'm, I'm going to, make this work or oh the, yeah the entire time I thought school was an absolute waste of time um <laughs> and that was hard that was really hard for my parents um uh dad was like yeah you could be a lawyer you could and it was the last thing <laughs> on the earth that I wanted to do so I'd spend every recess and lunch at a piano finding a piano in the music room commissioning other kids to come and sing with me you know anything music related but um for me there was never any other path um so, yeah, I could not wait. It felt like school really felt like a penitentiary to me. Did you did you go to music school as well after high school? Or? No, I didn't. Um, no. Uh, Mum and Dad would have loved that at the time, I think, just because it, I didn't appear to have much direction, just a lot of passion. Hmm. But, um, no, I ended up uh, joining a few bands and just playing. I love that. Many nights a week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just love what you said just then about it would appear to, that you didn't have much direction, <laughs> but you had a lot of passion. I, I think that's great. Um, so you eventually, uh, based on some research I had on you and, and your um, wonderful diary uh, video uh, documentaries on YouTube, you uh, traveled quite a fair bit. Um, and at one point you were kind of giving us the narrative of not having much really in your pocket and no concrete plans. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you take that plunge? And where did you go? Oh, I moved to France when I was 24. Um all I wanted was to uh I knew from the time I was a teenager I would spend a chunk of my life in Europe. I didn't know where, but I wanted to be somewhere uh where I didn't know the language 
or the culture because I wanted to be thrown into an alternate reality where no one knew who I was and just to see who I would be. Um, and so, yeah, people do seem to be um, a little taken aback by that idea, but um, I think in my particular case, my just my curiosity outweighs the fear from a lot of angles you could just call that foolish <laughs> but the only risk for me was um was never doing it yeah um it it reminds me of a, a philosophy that um regularly sticks in my mind which is uh creativity unexpressed dwindles dilutes and slowly disappears now in a regular week for you how often are you in a state of creating <laughs> Um, I've come to peace with the fact that I need to be in a constant state <laughs> of creative outlay in order to maintain any semblance of sanity. <laughs> so um, I am probably one of those um, insufferable people who, if unchecked, I would be saying, wow, 1,500 times a day. <laughs> Try to keep it to myself. <laughs> for people who would like to go about their lives. <laughs> but I, I seem to always be, in, if it's uh, drawing or maybe food or coming up with a project or um, designing a room or, or making music, I, I, I kind of have to, there's sort of like a minimum um, output that I have to achieve, otherwise I'll never sleep. So cool. Um, now, along with that, it seems like there's uh, a big part of playfulness or just play in that process mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. but when I hear your music and um, have watched you perform live there is also the opposite of that which is a massive part of controlling what you're doing mm. um, can you tell us about yeah how important play is in that process and and how much do you control Mm. I think it depends on your nature to begin with, or at least your education, in the sense that a lot of people are being, um, it, it's it's a big challenge for them to step out of uh, routine and, um, you know, cultural parameters for them to be more free within themselves, to trust themselves, to get back to that playful state. In my case, um, I, I think I'm coming from the other side. That the hardest thing in the world for me, I can't stand the word routine, like it actually makes my skin crawl. <laughs> um, the element of control and direction completely saved my life. Mm. Because of where, where I'm coming at it from, I could be in a state of play for 24 hours a day. I'd never go to bed, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's probably unsurprising that my partner is a, is a high-level athlete. <laughs> Yeah, we we balance each other out that way. He's the most disciplined person I've ever met, and I just admire it. And he's helped me a lot because I see what freedom he gives himself within those constraints. I see how much he's able to do because he respects um, certain um, limits. Um, and I feel the same way creatively, because for me, uh, I know that you can only ever have one of two creative problems, which is not enough ideas or too many. Mm. Um, and because uh, I, I, I love so much in music, I could walk sideways for years and never finish a tune. 
but the moment I give myself parameters, then um, I'm able to, fin to, to finish it, to get to the end of it, to see the form of it rather than float about in infinity. Um, and, it's, and it's really freeing and it's so satisfying. Yeah. I think it's easy to be, I think it's easy to be weird. And I think it's really easy to be formulaic. And I think the hardest thing in the world is to take a new idea and present it in a way that many people can understand. Totally. It's very similar to uh, the design process as well in that mm. we're given these briefs or these, um, these challenges and to come up with solutions, um, somewhat the parameters uh, can be uh, limiting, but sometimes they can actually be parameters that are just enough to yeah to produce the required outcome um yeah uh, that's very very cool um now let's jump to uh this recent ted talk that you did <laughs> my goodness how's that <laughs> it was exhilarating oh my gosh uh, amazing congratulations first of all thank you uh, so it's titled How to Translate the Feeling into Sound. Now, there was mm -hmm. a bit that honestly moved me in ways that I didn't expect. I think the speed with which the truth hit me and the emotional reaction to me processing that uh, got me the most. And if I may, I'd like to recount that little bit that you said. Oh, I'd love to know what it was. So this is, this is from you, okay? And uh, it, this is where I, I had to get, um, you know, the tissues out. Um, you said, how does a great song lay out your emotional experience as if the songwriter had been eavesdropping on your internal dialogue, like they were strumming your pain with their fingers and hitting you like a memory? Music has this unparalleled ability to take all of one's pain pull it into a single frame and invite us to relive it with all of the joy of experience and none of the suffering. How? You're going to make me cry, Ram. That's, that's un <laughs> unbelievable. Um, you articulated it um, in, in ways that, uh, what, it was only released um, not even a month ago and over 10,000 people have connected with that um, or more. And, my question is, how did you arrive at this realization? Um, before I answer that, may I may I ask you a question? Of course. May, can I just about a pure curiosity? If you could name three tunes that have made you feel like that in your life, what would they be? Oh man, um, I probably would go by a song that I've been playing on repeat recently. Uh -huh. It's it's called um, it's quite popular. Uh, it's called uh, Ghost by Halsey. Mm, I'll check it out. I don't know it. Yeah, that. Um, but we're also chatting. So it's interesting because she's actually, and, and I'm sure a lot of listeners would know that she is, Halsey is the one that was the female vocalist on the famous Chainsmokers song. Um, forgot what it is. Really poppy. But um but we were talking about Matt Corby off air, and I'm I'm a huge fan of mm -hmm. him. Uh, Resolution is one of my favorite songs of his. Oh, beautiful, yeah, yeah. amazing. Um, how did I arrive at that? Um, 
I mean, it was over years. It was over years. I mean, I think that the reason why people connected with the, the talk is because everyone knows what that feels like. Um, I always found it ironic. Um, I was always drawn to more melancholic music and uh, and I nonetheless felt like quite a happy person. And I often suspected that it was because I was channeling all of the pain into what sort of um, was traded off for beauty in the result. Mm. Um, and I just thought that was astounding. I was like, well, if we get one for all of the crap that can happen to a person in a lifetime, the musicians and the artists, we just get this one ticket. We get this ticket to, um, to redemption via the art because almost, it's almost as if, the, you know, the deeper the pain, the more beautiful mm. the art. Of course, and they're, they're, therein lies a danger because um, we know that uh, a lot of musicians and artists have a tendency for excess and, and, and arguably will go and seek that pain, either consciously or unconsciously, just so we have something to document and write about. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the bit that has to uh, stay checked in a person, I think. But um, I also don't think that we're that connected, that, sorry, that we're not so uh, disconnected from one another. And I feel like, um, I personally feel like I've had um, uh, a lifetime enough of, um, <laughs> of uh, let's say, moments of adversity. Uh, I also am unafraid of um, not having anything to write about because I think anytime anyone taps into the human experience, you'll find an endless reservoir of, um, of content. <laughs> totally. Um... Yeah, I mean, what's what's just coming to my mind is um, this this area of um, that's actually a question I had later, but I'll bring it up now. There is a quote by Anais Nin um, who once wrote that all writers have concealed more than they have revealed. Um, what comes to mind when you hear that? In, in approaching your own work? Um, I would love to get her definition of the word concealed. Mm. If I was presenting the idea immediately as it comes to my head, I wouldn't have used the word concealed. I would say uh, <laughs> the word coming to my head is interrupted, that, that they reveal less than they have interrupted in the sense that every every piece of art, every piece of music is just a keyhole. It's just a, it's a look into a keyhole into infinity <laughs> mm. it's a tiny it's not even a scratch on the you know mm -hmm. on the surface and um yeah and that's where the idea of the control comes in the idea of what i called the single frame um the keyhole is the same idea i suppose it's to take one single shape one single moment one little photograph take one photograph however 2d it may be of something much much bigger um and present it, just present it like that and let it go. But whatever it is, it's a tiny, tiny piece of it. <laughs> yeah. And I think it also, it's so true. It plays into, if we look at the keyhole thing, it's, it's playing into the idea that um, the artist, whether it be in music or um, painting or illustrating or design or, or anything like that, or any, any form of, of expression, dance, even theater, um, there's only so much that the composer can do. Um, 
in that the audience has to fill in the rest. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have to participate willingly, depending on how much they're willing willing to participate or or reveal themselves. Right? Mm-hmm. How much are they yeah. willing to kind of pull down their own barriers to kind of go, wow, that's not just the painting, or that's just not that a song. That's that's yeah, actually yeah, about yeah. my my entire life, or or maybe just a fraction of it. Yes, actually, that um, that brings up an interesting idea for me because um, I, uh, in the interest of always growing, I could never ever reject a criticism for a long time, mm. which is really unsustainable. <laughs> it, it just felt like a cop out to me to ever say, um, "Well, you don't like it because you don't understand." <laughs> um, and it took a lot for um, for me to be able to say, "Okay, well." D- you know, not everyone is criticizing either fairly. Some people are just criticizing because they can. <laughs> but there's another element to that. It's um, sometimes people don't connect with the art uh, simply because they understand exactly how it feels and they simply don't want to feel that. Mm. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to visit it again or right now. <laughs> and I find that really interesting. Ah, oh, so interesting. And um, yeah. Very, very uh, complex and and potentially yeah, sen- yeah, yeah. sensitive too to some people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's not to say that um, all art at some point will be gotten by everyone. It won't. Mm. It's just an, it's just another angle. Yeah, it's just another possibility on that thing. But I suppose we have to uh, when you're receiving criticism. I mean, at this point in my life, I've I've uh, resolved to uh, always take it from my sacred council. I think we had this conversation once, you and I, Mm. um, of people whose um, intention and point of perception uh, and knowledge of me, I trust enough to, uh, it's not not whether someone likes what you do or not. It's actually if they understand where you're coming from so they can help you determine the distance from what you are after and what you got to. Yeah. Yeah. And so there are sort of key people who, um, who whose objectivity I trust. Um, and they could say anything, and I'd be like, okay, yeah, right. You know, I will go and reflect on that. <laughs> yeah, um, she's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's this whole this whole other thing about um, how much noise do you listen to and filtering out which of those pieces of feedback or critique um how much do you um uh, you being everyone um how much do you actually uh allow in to influence your next step yeah exactly this is why I lo- this is why i love talking to you <laughs> <laughs> this is good this is good stuff um and uh it's a lot of things that, that I think um, go through people's minds but, but can't um, sort of discuss with everybody, um, essentially. I did this, I did this beautiful um, workshop in a psychiatric hospital in Belgium a few years back and the director of the hospital who asked, um, who asked me to participate, he was like, you know, um, I just want you to be a little bit ready. Some of these people have just come out of psychosis. It can be very confronting. And I had this niggling feeling that it wouldn't bother me at all. <laughs> and so we did this workshop. It was like a creative workshop. 
all about uh, expressing feelings anonymously. And it was beautiful. And at the end, one of them said, you know, thank, thank you so much for coming. You didn't come to look at us. You see us. You know, and I was like, I am so sorry that this is even a thing for you because the only difference between you and I <laughs> is the fact that I had an outlet ever since I was a kid and it, and it built me some kind of armour. Mm. And I mean that whatever happened didn't matter because I could always channel it somewhere else. And the thing that I could create was always bigger than any than any transitory bit of sufferance that I could experience. And in many ways, I know that I'm very um, I'm very like so many other you know in inverted commas sensitive people in the world. Um, I hope it doesn't sound too cliche, but I'm often thinking about them. Mm. Because if I don't, if I if I can't do it, then no one who who can. Because I know how it feels. I know how scary it is. But the but the but the sensitive people, we need to be able to survive. We need to be able to thrive, even. Um, and if we can be evidence of it, it's just it's so much bigger than you. Oh yeah, you uh, absolutely nailed it uh, with that example. Um... The, uh, you've, you've certainly done a better job at um, making that point made than I have. <laughs> um, oh. that, was, that was great. Uh, thank you for sharing that story. So let's, let's talk about this armor that you brought up um, because you shared to us about playing the piano, and, but more than ever, you are, and for years now, you've been um, playing on these electronic gadget things with machines on on and around you, um, what do you think electronic-based instruments achieve that um, traditional instruments can't? Oh, the only thing they can do is, um, oh, you know who said it so well? It was uh, Isao Tomita, who's the Japanese grandfather of synths. He died last year, actually. Um, he said that, oh, I hope I don't get it wrong, he said, Unlike the painter or the sculptor, the musician has to paint with a ready-made palette, i.e. the instruments that they were playing. But when the synth came along, essentially the musician got to choose his or her own colour palette hmm. to paint with colours essentially that we hadn't seen before. Um, and as long as you're working on creating original sounds, uh, that's what you get. That's what they give you, the ability to extend your colour palette. That's all. So good. So good. Mm. Um, now, from a technical point of view, for those wanting to experiment with electronic devices um, in, in their music, and you refer to them as synths, um, where where do you recommend they start? Oh, okay. Well, I use a yeah a, a couple of analog synths and a couple of very interesting MIDI controllers, namely the Ableton Push. Um, what I would suggest is that anyone wishing to dabble in it finds a direction first because this stuff is endless <laughs> it's so endless that if uh, you i mean i know people who who basically just collect gear and much of it just sits idle for years and years i'm really proud to say that i own nothing that i don't use and i don't actually own that much um it has to be <laughs> excuse the pun instrumental to what i'm doing so uh 
in every case. For me, just because it works for me in the way I'd have to limit my mind, otherwise it's just a big old mess, um, I, I see the vision first and then I adapt it with the technology mm-hmm. or at least bring it to life with the technology. So I would figure out exactly what kind of sounds you love and then get passionate about um, trying to reproduce them for the purpose of then busting out of that reproduction and going elsewhere with it, knowing that you're already in love with that particular colour. Yeah. The whole thing about, um, yeah, reverse engineering the the feeling, um, the intent. um, And I guess if we think of that from a practical point of view, I'm sure there are uh, people that listen to certain types of music um, and wonder how did that sound get created? I think like, you know, I like that sound. How, how did mm-hmm. that, how did that get made? Um, yeah. Yeah. There's also an amazing website called equip board. I think it's E Q U I P board.com. And it's just got this endless list of producers and the gear they use. Wow. That's good. Yeah. That's a good resource. Yeah. I'll definitely link that up. Um, and and I guess I only put it out there because um, not until you try it do you actually know if you love it or you hate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think if we take on you know things that um, that I've uh, personally done in, for example, design school, and a lot of the other listeners who have been to design school, it is the whole thing about find a piece of work and try to recreate that. Yeah. Um, using the tools available to us that were also made, um, used to make that thing. Yep. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And so what's a, what's a, if designers use, you know, all types of software, what product would they, um, use, uh, you know, people that want to do similar things, um, in your space of, of creating uh, music what is a device that they should go into a store as a bare bones kind of go, all right, this is going to give you um, 60 to 70% of the, um, the knowledge. Um, this one tool will give you um, the foundation to build upon. Yeah. Ableton Live, baby. Ableton Live, baby. Ableton Live. <laughs> Ableton Live, comma, baby. Baby. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> yeah, Ableton, Ableton Live. Live. Okay. <laughs> and Ableton is the product or the brand? The model or? Uh, both. Both. Okay. Ableton. Yeah. So Ableton is um, uh, began as, a, as music software and then they extended out into uh, a controller. Now they have some other products. But um, uh, those guys, are they, they completely made possible my entire live show. Wow. Yeah. All right. So how much are we talking here at this point in time um, as we're recording this early 2017? How much would one of those bad boys cost? Oh. Around about? Um, I, I would have to go onto their website and find out. I'm sorry, Ram. Are we talking under a grand or over? Oh, I think for the software, for the software, I believe under a grand. Okay. All right. Yeah. For the controller, I cannot remember. That's all right. It just kind of yeah, it gives gives people an idea, you know, if they want to dabble into this thing. And and I, I'm pretty sure you're talking about because I've seen you use it. You're talking about the 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 square rectangle device thing with 
clear buttons on it. Yeah, yeah, that's always on the right. I usually use two controllers for different reasons, but the primary one that makes all the looping possible is on that bore, very sexy looking one. Yeah, and it lights up. (laughs) Yes, yeah. All all the buttons light up. All right, cool. Now, um, when I did see you live, what really impressed me was you were layering and looping, as you just mentioned there um, with that device, you were looping sounds and effects that were going to happen ahead of time. Uh, and so essentially you were envisioning a composition while composing in real time. How do you separate doing that process while performing in the moment? Because it looked like you were so in the moment, you know, you would be singing, you'd be playing these buttons, you'd be like playing this thing, but then your foot somewhere and then you're like looping stuff. (laughs) I'm like, are you, are you a female music, musical terminator? It was amazing. Oh, thank you. I think I just always, I always think in polyphony chords and rhythms. And just with this setup, I can, it just doesn't have to be only in my head. Got it. So it's not so, it's just a, it's a, it's a a materialization of what's going in my head anyway, even if I was just singing. Got it. So it's not as complicated as it, seems yeah like once you do it once once you do the loop once it actually just merges in to the flow yeah well the actually the difficult part about what i do i don't find it to be the looping itself it's just the the admin the tech admin so for instance if i'm going from one song into another i have to change all the sounds of of the oh my goodness and it's simple it's simple but because i'm singing and i don't want everything to take every intro to take four minutes I gotta, I, so, and I allow myself a really small space. I, what I want is is for um, the time that it takes for me to build a song to be no longer than the time it would take if I wasn't building it. And so that uh, that's the thing that puts pressure on me to not do it but to do it quickly because if the tension falls, then I don't have my audience anymore. Totally. Yeah, and that's that's where the fun is, or that's where the adrenaline is, I think. But um, and so with the live show, I've tried to find a balance of I, I, uh, if I if I built every song from the ground up, it'd just be far too much of a risk. So in every song, I build something within the song, but not necessarily all of it. One because if I if I'm not in the right headspace or whatever, and every loop screws up, then it would take six minutes to begin the tune. <laughs> <laughs> and just to be able to have some kind of flow also from the audience's perspective if my head was down all the time then that doesn't make me much of a singer or a performer so I just have to constantly try and find that balance between what is actually what makes me feel legit as a looping artist <laughs> and what is interesting for the audience to watch knowing that they cannot see my every move yeah and good old practice would get you there I imagine I do do a lot of that just yeah. testing and testing and just testing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now, in April 2015, you released a video titled "The Saddest Heya You'll Ever Hear," <laughs> and it's actually uh, of you performing a cover of "Heya" by Outcast. The video itself, on Facebook anyway, has reached two and a half million views. Incredible. Um, I might insert a little now to give context. I 
What was your intention to this cover version? And why do you think people connected with it to this extent? Because it's very, very different from the original. I will tell you my experience of it, whether or not the findings are conclusive is another question. Go for it. That was the first thing that I ever did where I genuinely didn't care if people were going to like it or not. For the first time in my entire life, I had closed the gap between what I wanted to feel, listening back to it, and what I felt when I listened back to it. And it, it's, it's really the premise of the TED Talk. It's that the, the vision that you have artistically, for me anyway, is based on a feeling. And if I don't get the feeling when I'm listening back, I haven't hit the mark. Mm. Um, it took a really long time to have enough, um, just to, to not just have the gear, but to be able to work it in a way that matched up. Um, but it coincided with a particular point in time where not only did I get it, you know, in inverted commas, right, only in the sense of my intention versus my perception of the outcome. But I genuinely didn't mind anymore. I just didn't mind if people liked it or not. I was just wasn't doing it for anyone else. And I actually put it online and I said to my, my roommate at the time, I said, um, I have to create a new headspace for myself where I disassociate the struggle from from my uh, idea of what integrity is or how good something is, or in other words, I don't want to believe sufferance is the only path to creating something of worth. Mm. I'm done now. I'm doing this because I love it and I was free to do it and I, I would like to start perpetuating that for myself and I would like to continue doing it even if no one cares. And then within 24 hours it had a million views. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it was wild. It was wild. Why that song? Um, that's a really good question. I don't even know if I can remember. Hmm. I remember a couple of people around me said, oh, people have kind of forgotten, hey, uh, you know, don't expect for people to connect with it. And I just, I was, I just like it. <laughs> I like it. If you listen to the lyrics of it, it's so profound. <laughs> Like he's, he's this, his whole comment on the fact that our generation is just less apt at being able to create meaningful relationships. My baby, uh, my, my baby, my baby don't mess around because she loves me so, and this I know for sure. But does she? But does she really wanna? <laughs> or basically, is it that she can't see me walking out that door? 
don't try to fight the feeling because the thought alone is killing me right now. Thank God for mum and dad for sticking two together because we don't know how. Right? And then at the end, <laughs> it's just amazing. Yeah. And at the end, um, he, I can't remember, what, is, what does he say at the end? You're, he's little, he almost says under his breath in the recording right at the end of the tune, you all don't want to hear me, you'll just want to dance. Right? So he's <laughs> created this incredible tune, this massive hit that had the world dancing and going, shake it, shake it. Right? <laughs> but slid under it was this profound message about relationships and our ability to basically experience love and, you know, it's like, wow, when I cottoned on to it, I, was like, oh, God. I would love to create a version of it that that uh, um, represents the way I feel when I simply read the lyrics. <laughs> yeah, you, you um, totally repositioned. Um, yeah, you, you totally repositioned it. And I guess, I mean, that's the beauty about this, the, the song, right? It's uh, the total juxtaposition of yeah. the feeling and how it was um, made heard, but it wasn't truly heard by all um, until yeah. your version came out, um, in my opinion. Very cool. So, uh, Rachel, a few more questions for you. Yes. Uh, this one is, a, is one I ask most of my guests here. If you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Rachel Claudio, perhaps the Rachel finishing high school, what would you tell her? Mm, I'd say, um, Rach. <laughs> Um, I know you want to save the world, but being sad is fine too. If you live a life full of joy and exasperation and fatigue and hope and failure and passion and disappointment and you have moments of insufferable loss and then other moments of uh, triumphant exhilaration, you would have led a a complete life and that's all that counts. So good. Rachel, who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? That person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential? Mm. I'd probably say my partner, my partner JR. Yeah. He's um he's a he's a really incredible example of someone who is as kind as he is strong. And I think especially in Australian culture, we're taught to be kind not necessarily strong. Uh, We're taught that nice is kind or good (laughs) and uh, we're not really taught to stick up for ourselves. Um, And he's a really shining example of someone who's naturally found that balance. Mm. I love the way he respects himself. Such a deep love for everyone around him but will never allow anyone to overstep his boundaries. Beautiful. So what's next for you and everything you're involved in this year and beyond? Uh, This year is my year of space. This is my year of the way it all comes out is absolute perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, So if, if all goes flowingly, then I will release a succession of singles over the next few months. Um, each with their own um, accompanying image, if you will. Um, and I think I'll be uh, dabbling in a lot more uh, art this year. It's just my other love. 
Fantastic. And uh, for the listeners who want to get in touch with you online, what is the best way? Oh, the best way, because I do tend to fall off the grid every <laughs> so often, but if ever you leave me a comment on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, then even if I don't get back to you right away, there will be a moment where I sit down and we'll end up giving you a very personal, sincere reply. <laughs> Amazing. Rachel, thank you once again for your time and sharing your thoughts behind the heart and soul of your work. You are an absolute gift, as I've said to you um, on air and off air time and time again. Uh, and it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Oh, very same. And I throw it all back to you, Ram. My pleasure to be here. Giants, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode with Rachel. I can honestly say that I have never met anyone quite like her. She is very dear to my heart. And if you've made it this far into listening to this episode, I'm sure it's clear why. Feel free to get in touch with her on what moved you most. I'm sure she'd love to hear from you. I also recommend you check out her TEDx talk and the full version of the Heya cover. Both will be linked in the blog post of this episode. And do share this podcast with someone who you think will really benefit from her story. The URL giantthinkers.com is easy to remember and easy to flick over to a friend or a loved one. Now, a little teaser for our next guest. She is an internationally acclaimed expert and doctor on a topic that everyone should learn more about, especially me, and that is the importance of sleep. Having previously worked in law and education, she made a pivot to science and has been researching and consulting on sleep for over 20 years. She's written two books titled The Sleep Diet and The Complete Guide to a Good Night's Sleep. She shares with us how to unlock the power of truly deep and restful sleep for a healthier lifestyle. That one will be out soon. I appreciate each and every one of you that has taken the time to listen today. Thank you for reaching out via social media and leaving me messages that inspire me to continue doing what I love, which is helping you. If you'd like to follow my daily journey and drop me a line, my handle on Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter is TheGiantThinker. And before we part, I want to leave you with one of Rachel's beautiful messages from this episode when she said, if you have moments of insufferable loss and other moments of triumphant exhilaration, you would have led a complete life. And that's all that counts. 